Long history. How Manila became Spanish. Part 1. The people of the Philippines. Hello everyone and welcome to another document on long history. Now here on long history we've got a couple of documents already about the early days of the Spanish colony on the Philippines. Our first document about this subject was called The Journey to Colonize the Philippines and that took place until about June 1565. And that was the very day when the Spanish arrived on the island of Cebu in the central Philippines and declared the setting up of this new colony. The second document looked at the early days of that colony and in fact we named it the Philippines' first Spanish colony. That continued the story from 1565 to about 1567 and it actually ended on something of a cliffhanger. One of the main men in the settlement had just been killed in an attempted mutiny. The Portuguese were nearby and were threatening the very existence of the settlement. And the previous document ended with a cry for help to the Spanish authorities in Mexico. Here, as this document begins, the action actually moves on three years. And the Spanish have moved from Cebu Island to Panay Island. Now we're not given a reason, a direct reason why the Spanish have moved to this island. But it does say here that the Portuguese had blockaded Cebu. Not allowing any supplies to leave or enter. And that certainly could have been one of the reasons why the Spanish were forced to move. However, although they've moved to a different island, they don't seem to be very settled there either. So they're still looking for that perfect place to set up their capital on the Philippine Islands. Significantly, Panay is one step closer to Luzon Island, which is where Manila is based. And in this document, we look at the life of the Spanish at the time as they try to make friends with the local people, as they explore the area, eventually hearing of this place called Manila and deciding to take a look, with historic consequences. So before we start, I wanted to say a particular hello to anyone from the Philippines. I know because I've covered a couple of documents about the Spanish colony on the Philippines, I've attracted quite a few listeners from there, which is very nice to see. And I would like to apologise if I mis make any mistaken assumptions about the islands. And perhaps I over-describe the locations of various places for those people who aren't from the Philippines and don't know the islands very well. And I would say this story of the early days of the Spanish colony on the Philippines is a fascinating story whether you're from the Philippines or not. So if you're interested, don't forget to look up those previous documents we've covered, the journey to colonise the Philippines and the Philippines' first Spanish colony. Now, as this first episode begins, there's an interesting detail for anyone who has listened to those previous documents. In the very first sentence of this document, there's mention of a man called Martin de Goite. And that's one of the leaders who was mentioned in both the previous documents, so he survived to make it to 1570, which you can't take for granted in these types of documents. But that's always a name to watch out for in these documents. Martin de Goite, I also call him in another document. Another of the principal characters in this document is Captain Juan de Salcedo, who is grandson of the current governor, who is Miguel López de Legazpi. And just a reminder before this document begins that the Spanish are on the island of Panay, but they still have links with their first settlement on the island of Cebu. 
So that's enough introduction, let's get started with how Manila became Spanish, part 1, the people of the Philippines. On the 8th of May of this year, 1570, the master of camp, Martin de Goite, left the river of Panay with 90 harquebusiers and 20 sailors on board the following vessels. The junk, San Miguel, of about 50 tons burden, with three large pieces of artillery. The frigate, La Tortuga, and 15 prows, manned by natives of Cebu and of the island of Panay. The officers who accompanied the master of camp were Captain Juan de Salcedo, grandson of the governor, Sergeant Major Juan de Moron, Ensign Major Amador de Riaran, the High Constable Gabriel de Rivera, and the notary in chief Hernando Riquel. After sailing northwest for two days, they arrived at the island of Zibuyan, a high and mountainous land known to possess gold mines. Without talking to any of the natives, they left that island, which is situated about 14 leagues from the river of Panay, and went to the island of Mindoro. Among other islands passed was that of Banton, where lived certain Spaniards who had gone there in vessels belonging to friendly Indians. The island of Banton is about 15 leagues from Sibuyan. It is a small, circular island, high and mountainous, and is thickly populated. The natives raise a very large number of goats here, which they sell in other places. The natives of this island of Banton, as well as those of Sibuyan, are handsome and paint themselves. From the island of Banton to that of Bindoro, there is a distance of about 12 leagues. The master of camp reached this latter place and anchored there with all the vessels in his charge. Mindoro is also called the Lesser Luzon. All its ports and maritime towns are inhabited by Moros. We hear that inland live naked people, called Chichimecos. As far as could be seen, this island lacks provisions. News reached the master of camp that, in a river five leagues from the place where the ships had anchored, were two vessels from China the inhabitants of which these natives called Sangleyes. Seeing that the weather did not permit him to send the large ship, because the wind was blowing south by west, he dispatched Captain Juan de Salcedo with the prows and rowboats to reconnoitre the said ships, and to request peace and friendship with them. This step had scarcely been taken when the southwest wind began to blow so violently that our people were compelled to put into a harbour and to find shelter for that night behind a promontory. Four prows and the frigate, unable to do this, found shelter farther away, and, keeping always in sight of the shore, these vessels looked for the ships all that night. The next morning they were overtaken by five of the other vessels and the frigate, which was searching for them. The master of camp and Captain Juan de Salcedo were still behind with the large junk and the other prows. At break of day, the prows which had preceded the others reached the river where the Chinese ships were anchored. The Chinese, either because news of the Spaniards had reached them or because they had heard arquebus shots, were coming out side by side with force hills up, beating on drums, playing on fives, 
firing rockets and culverins and making a great warlike display. Many of them were seen on deck armed with arquebuses and unsheathed cutlasses. The Spaniards, who were not at all slothful, did not refuse the challenge offered them by the Chinese. On the contrary, they boldly and fearlessly attacked the Chinese ships and, with their usual courage, grappled them. This was certainly a rash move on their part, for the Chinese ships were large and high, while the prows were so small and low that they hardly reached to the first pillar of the enemy's ships. But the goodly aim of the arquebusiers was so effective that the Chinese did not leave their shelter, and the Spaniards were thus enabled to board their ships and take possession of them. There were about 80 Chinese on board the two ships. About 20 were killed in the affray. The soldiers searched the cabins in which the Chinese kept their most valuable goods, and there they found silk, both woven and in skins, gold thread, musk, gilded porcelain bowls, pieces of cotton cloth, gilded water jugs and other curious articles, although not in a large quantity, considering the size of the ships. The decks of both vessels were full of earthen jars and crockery, large porcelain vases, plates and bowls, and some fine porcelain jars, which they called cineratas. They also found iron, copper, steel, and a small quantity of wax which the Chinese had bought. Captain Juan de Salcedo arrived with the rear guard of the prows, after the soldiers had already placed in safety the goods taken from the Chinese ships. He was not at all pleased with the havoc made among the Chinese. The master of camp, Martin de Goite, who had remained behind with the large ship, showed much more displeasure when he heard of the occurrence. As soon as he was able to cast anchor with the junk in the river of Bato, the name of the place where the Chinese vessels were found, he made all haste to make them understand that he was sorry for their misfortune and that they had done wrong in sallying forth against the Spaniards. Nevertheless, he said he would give them, besides their freedom, a ship in which they might return to their own country without any hindrance, besides whatever was necessary for their voyage. This was highly appreciated by the Chinese, who, being very humble people, knelt down with loud utterances of joy. After this proposal had been made clear to the Chinese and gladly accepted by them, the master of camp entrusted the chief notary, Hernando Riquel, with the repairing of one of the ships, ordering him to have the hatchway taken out and to send all that the ship contained to the port of Panay. Seeing that the sails, masts and rigging of the vessels were so different from ours that none of his men had any knowledge of them, the master of camp thought best to ask the Chinese to send three or four of their sailors with the junk to Panay in company with some friendly Moros of Luzon, who were with the Spaniards. The Chinese very willingly agreed to that, and provided the required men. Thus, the ship was dispatched with twelve Luzon Moros, four Chinese, and four Spanish soldiers of the guard. In this river of Bateau was found some green pepper growing on trees as small as shrubs, with their clusters like agias. Here, they learned that the town of Mindoro, which is the capital of that island, was five leagues from Bato, 
and that three more Chinese ships were there. They also heard that the Moros of Mindoro had made great preparations for its defence and had provided themselves with a large number of culverins, arrows and other offensive weapons and were entrenched in a very strong fort. In consideration of this and the fact that the Spaniards in this country have always desired to come in conflict with people who do not flee from them, they decided to proceed immediately to that island, although the natives of the river of Bato offered them peace and promised to pay them 200 gold tails, the equivalent of 2,000 pesos de minas in Spanish reckoning, if they would remain there a few days. The master of camp assured them of peace, and, telling them to have the money ready upon his return, set out for the port of Mindoro. Departing from the river of Baco in the morning, the Spaniards arrived by noon at the town of Mindoro, which is an excellent though poorly sheltered seaport. The harbour has only one entrance. Its waters beat against a hill which is the first and the smallest of a chain of three hills overlooking the port. The other two hills are very craggy, and thus form a defence to the pass for the natives. Many armed Moros appeared on the first hill, bowmen, lancers and some gunners, linstocks in hand. All along the hillside stood a large number of culverines. The foot of the hill was fortified by a stone wall of over 14 feet thick. The Moros were well attired after their fashion and wore showy headdresses of many colours turned back over their heads. Many of them were beating drums, blowing horns made from shells and ringing bells. The number of men was quite large. So we end this episode with a standoff. What will happen between the Portuguese and the Moros of this island? We can see the Spanish exploring the area looking for opportunities. And as the author of this document says, seeming to pick fights with anyone they meet. It's worth noting that although the Spanish are based in Panay, this island they visited here is called Mindoro, and that's one step closer to Luzon, the island where Manila is based. The other thing of note in this episode is I thought it was interesting to see the array of people on the Philippines at this time. There are those Moros, there are the Chinese, there's another group of people called Chichimecos, and there seems to be a whole array of people living on these islands trading with these Moros and the Chinese. So we can see that the Philippine islands of the 1570s were very much a bustling place full of different nationalities and the Spaniards have turned up and added to the complexity of that. In the next episode, we'll hear the results of that battle, and we'll also hear of the many wonders of the village of Manila. There are still many scuffles though on the way to that, the future capital of the Spanish Philippines. So thank you for listening everyone, I hope you've enjoyed that episode, please do like it before you move on in any possible way. Don't forget to subscribe as well to be informed of the remaining episodes in this series, there are actually five episodes in this document and that will be followed straight away by another document which continues the same story and that will be another five episodes. So there's ten in total about the founding of the Spanish capital of the Philippines. So thank you for listening everyone. This was How Manila Became Spanish Part 1 The People of the Philippines Goodbye <laughs>